Hello and welcome to Spiritual Advice from a Good Morning Barbarian Lunatic. I think you know the drill. I'm gonna leave you to yourselves and I'm gonna make myself a coffee. Um, let's say it's the 17th of July, it's about 12 o'clock during the day, and this is going to be about pride, right? Is it okay to be proud? Good question. It is a good question. Yeah. You probably came here to listen to something. I got rejected again. It was an attempt to go cooking somewhere. And they say you can't cook there. It's like they do these kind of seminars. And actually, I was going there, wanted to go there to meet someone or just to reach out, if you will. But it seems to be not my purpose to be the one who's doing it. I'm not sure. Right, like really weird. I contacted them before for a job they rejected, and they have these cooking opportunities. And I contacted them, I said, Hey, I can cook, I've already cooked for you. They said, No, because you didn't do this kind of seminar, they can't accept you. I think that were the rules all along. And since I'm never going to do that seminar, I will basically never cook there again. Because why? You know, it says, is it okay to be proud? It's interesting. Maybe I'm just going to drink tea. You know, I'm a sucker for coffee. But what I don't like about coffee is it makes you like it riles you up for a short period of time and then you're going to crash at one point like kaboom like a meteor I wanted to do something with that I want to say like a meteor like a me me T O right <laughs> You know me T all right Yeah all right I forgot Maybe it wasn't about the coffee it was about 
changing my state of mind into something else. Because that's the thing with suffering, right? I mean, I like suffering, don't get me wrong. You know, it's a challenge. It gets you to places. It helps you to move on, right? It beats you to a pulp. Yeah, and then you can take the time and heal. You know, I like suffering. I like being rejected and things being taken away from me. You know, I like all these things. I can't help it, right? I'm probably like one of these women that find themselves in porn because they just want to get, like, fucked. Like, they want to feel something, and the only men that can do that happen to be the ones that are in porn. Only then they realize that there's probably a certain gateway. And once you cross a certain line from more or less like professional pornography, you'll end up in Bukake gangbang. And then you're going to be like really whatever manhandling is like. I mean, they're going to spank the shit out of your tits. You know, you know they're going to put two penises in your anus. I don't know why, to be honest. You know, is this like directional? Maybe a woman needs that. Some women. But I've just yesterday heard a story about some German kids in Spain raped a girl and then filmed it. I would fucking beat these assholes to a pulp. I probably wouldn't. I just wouldn't make them suffer, like, really bad. And that's more a mental thing. The shame of having done that. You know, I hope that sometimes, I really hope that people really suffer for things that they do. Right? It's like imagining if I would be with a woman and I'd fall in love and then that woman also would say she loves me or whatever. Or she would know it and then she sleeps with another man. It's like, yeah, I hope you suffer for that. I hope you fucking suffer for that. Maybe it's a bit mean. Maybe it's a bit dishonest. Because a part of me thinks, you know, no. Because they raped the fucking girl. Now, of course, you also have to see that she probably wasn't, like, wearing robes or something, right? She was probably, you know, I'm just saying, wearing a skirt or hot pants. So as a woman or as a girl, you should also be a little bit more careful how you dress. Because people these days are confused assholes. And especially when they're drunk. So when you're in an area where people are drunk, you know, maybe dress a bit less like, you know, come and fuck me. Maybe she was dressing normal, who's to say, but when I see young girls even at the age of seven, how they sometimes dress, I think like, what the heck? Like, what's wrong with your parents to allow you to wear these things? Or has it even anything to do with parents? 
because each child has its own taste for clothes, right? It's a very good question, I believe. So pride, does your outfit say something about pride? Well, if you identify too much with what you're wearing, then you may feel like, you know, you're proud of your sense of style. And that's a bit different than just saying, you know, I like what I wear. You know, when you're proud, it's like, you know, you're pressing your chest out and you're... You know, squeezing your butt muscles tightly together. It's like, ah, you know, ah, I'm so good, you know. You clap yourself or tap yourself or pat yourself on the shoulder. You say like, yeah, I'm proud, you know. Who said it? We were listening to a conversation. It was like young men. And they were talking about brands. And then they said, you know, what's a replica, apparently. And to me, a replica is something, you know, you know, you replicated something and then you have a replica, which means it's in that sense, not the original. It's like a ripoff, right? It's like Adidas with four stripes or something or five. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter, right? You wear them, you don't wear them. Who cares? And... But the point is, when you're talking about it, or when you're buying something because it's the brand, and you want to show the brand, and, you know, show that you're kind of a patron of the brand, that's becoming a bit desperate, right? It's like, you know, I want the brand to increase the value of the image I have of myself and that others may have of me. But the problem is, as much as some people may like you for that, there are going to be others that are going to despise you for it. You may receive love amongst your friends or supporters because they think, oh yeah, that guy has money, or he has got style or whatever. But you just look like everybody else who wears these things. And then there's other people who are really going to hate you for wearing these things because they say what a schmuck right so you do this to be liked well welcome to the real world because you're never gonna get 100% you could probably be lucky if you would get 50 but 20 is more likely like nobody not never Everybody never likes something. It's just impossible. Like, even in a tribe, I believe, you know, there would be people that would despise the choices that the chief makes. And they would think, you know, I'd be better a chief. It's like Mufasa and Scar, right? Sure, they were brothers, but it's like Rollo and... Shit, why do I, why do I remember Rollor? Ragnar Lothbrok. 
right? They were brothers. And the younger one was constantly jealous of the older one who seemed to be the more gifted. Yeah, and Rolloa ended up like a perfumed little doggy in the lap of some kind of queen, powdered. I forgot if he wore a wig. But he sold himself to the highest bidder. Or he gambled, he won, whatever. He should have just stayed in that castle. Like, he should have never come out of there again. That's what I see. Like, if you do shit like this, then stay there. You know, and that's what I mean. If you cheat on me, then stay the fuck where you are. And I mean that. I mean, I wouldn't punch you in the face. You know, I'm talking about women here. But I would certainly completely ignore you for the rest of my entire life just out of principle and maybe that's pride but I really have to say I don't care I'd rather be alone than having a woman cheat on me again because it's happened before and basically you know I just I'm sick of these relationships that have Relationships that have no stamina, that can't take it to be separated, that can't take it to have no sex for some time. You know, it's like, you serious about this? Or do you just want to cock? And it's fairly easy to see, right? If such a woman is flirting with others. Phony. That's what it then is. Then she's just a phony. Or not just, but that's what she is, right? It's like, cheers, you know. As much as it pains me that you're a phony. Yeah, I want to say I'm about to discover what it means to be free from shame. I have no idea why I just said that. But that's just what came through. It's actually true, I have no shame anymore. You know, I watch porn images, I mean, I just deleted them. So it's always like back and forth. But if a woman would cheat on me, I would reject her. Like, for the rest 
of my presence here. And is that false pride? I think that's determination because I know what I want. And I know that women that cheat are a pain in the ass. Because they just want you to flip, right? You know, they just wanted to screw you. And you can make your own, right? You can get to your own understanding of pride. Or is it okay to be proud? Maybe just by hearing me talk about it. I don't have to like give you a definition of what pride is. I mean, I already did that. You know, if you pump yourself up with hot air, you're gonna fall on your face. But with me, that isn't hot air. With me, that's like, that's truly how I feel. You know, it's like weird to be so determined, but if a woman cheats on me, I'm never going to touch her again. Probably won't even speak with her, let alone ever sleep with her again. Because that's the kind of man I choose to be, you know? And that's why I say when six boys or young adults rape a girl, then yes, I wish they're going to suffer for it. Because you have to pay the price for what you did. Because I don't care whether you were drunk. I don't care whether you had a bad day. I don't care whether you were frustrated. Because I've been frustrated. I've had pains, insecurities. And sorry, these kids had enough money to go on holiday somewhere else. You know, if I had the power, if I could be everywhere at the same time, maybe I can be, who's to say, I would go back to that point and beat them the fuck up. But the thing is, you can't just beat them up. You know, you can't just beat them up before they're doing it. And beating them up after is also a bit stupid. You know, you have to do it basically, you know, if we're talking about timing, if you want the message to strike home. Because if you just beat them up before they did it, they're not going to feel it. But when they're just about to do it, you know, when they take her, they grab her, and then you come, bam. You just beat them to a pulp. You know, I'm not saying be violent. I'm not saying walk around and, you know, look for people and want to hurt others. But sure, man, pay attention. But also make sure you don't just rush blindly to somebody's aid who doesn't really want it. Right, it's like these classical, you know, couple, man gets aggressive toward the woman, you go to defend the woman and you punch the guy and the woman runs to the guy. 
But maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I just sometimes have the feeling I never found a woman who would do that for me. Like, no matter what I did, who would always come back to me. I haven't had that. Could say in a while. It once happened, but I rejected it. Because it just was off. Like, it was done. And I think something else is about to be done also. I'm not quite sure, right? It's complicated. But what does that have to do with pride? I think I just have to get on with what I wanted to do, which is... This is... Areas of it, even for a party member, were neutral. This is 1984, by the way. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Winston Smith, his chin nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old oh, rag wow. mats. At one end of it, a colored poster, too large for indoor display. Lies, uh, ancient. We are not modern. So in the back of the house, there was a big tank of rainwater, and there was a horse trough. That well, I'm only a beginner, and that's for advanced people, and thank you so much for thinking of me. And I certainly would like to sit with you sometime, and, you know. And they said, oh, you can do it. Right, I just have to relax into this a bit. This is CD1 of an 18 CD set containing sessions from a four-week course by Ram Das titled The Yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. It was presented at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado from June 11th to July 11th, 1974. This CD contains session number one, the introduction. This is a course entitled The Yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. It is a uh, course on a Hindu text taught by a Jew in a Buddhist university. is primarily concerned with the devotional and um, karma-yogic aspects of life. To me, words are birds. They come and they go, and what I say may not be as important as just the fact that we are together concerned with the Bhagavad Gita. My understanding of what we're doing here 
is because you are genuinely seeking in the realm of the development of the spirit of your own consciousness. That's what I'm doing here. And when we are gathered together in that way, with trust and with open hearts, a transmission occurs. And that transmission is one which deepens all of our connectedness to the living spirit, to the faith, in the possibility of who we are when we finish being who we thought we were. Now, when I use the word transmission, there is a tendency to think that I am going to transmit something to you, that he will transmit to us. And I would like to read to you a quote from Ramakrishna, which says that rainwater falling upon the roof of a house flows down to the ground, often through spouts shaped grotesquely like a tiger's head. One gets the impression that the water comes from the tiger's mouth, but in reality it descends from the sky. In the same way, the holy teachings that come from the mouths of godly men seem to be uttered by those men themselves, while in reality they proceed from God. In talking with um, Swami Muktananda, who is a very, very beautiful saint from India, I was expressing to him my feeling of presumption at uh, attempting to teach the Gita. In India, most people are pundits. It's part of the way of life. Most people are great scholars, really, and they have all made extensive studies of the Gita. The Gita is a book which has been commentaried more than any other book in the history of man. And um, often I've gotten into long philosophical discussions about the Gita with the railway conductor or the sweeper because in everybody's spare time, or when they're finished with the spare thing of doing their regular work, they're doing the important work, which is studying the Gita, or the Ramayana. And so I was telling uh, Swami Muktananda that I thought it was a little presumptuous for me, because I'm not a Sanskrit scholar, and I'm really not a great intellect about the Gita either. And he told me this story. Uh, Krishna, as you may or may not know, I'll tell you a little bit about Krishna soon, but Krishna at one stage of his incarnation as an avatar was this beautiful young blue boy. And there was a great um, student of the Gita, an old man and his wife, and he was so intent upon studying the Gita that he had stopped doing all of his work, wouldn't do anything. And they were going without food, and the wife, his wife was being very harsh on him, saying, you have a duty to go out and bring in food for the family, at least one or two meals a day. But he wouldn't listen. He'd just go off into the woods and study the Gita. And she kept pressing him and hounding and hounding and pressing. And she was making his life quite difficult, but he would escape to the woods to study the Gita every day. She's screaming at him as he left. And this one day, he went out into the woods, and he sat studying the Gita, and he came across a line in the Gita which said, if you offer all of your devotion to me, says Krishna, you need worry about nothing in the world. It'll all be taken care of. And he thought, well, isn't that a peculiar line? I mean, here I'm totally devoted to the Gita, to Krishna, and here's my, my wife all free. And yet it says right here that if I am devoted to the Gita, everything will be taken care of. Why isn't everything being taken care of? At which point he underlined that sentence because he wasn't sure about it. A 
At that moment, back at his house, there was a knock at the door, and the wife went to the door, and there was a young man standing there with bags of rice and dal, lentil, and flour, long supply for many months. And uh, the wife said, what are you doing? What is this? She, he said, this is for the family of somebody who studies the people. And he brought in these big bags of food, and she noticed as he was setting them down that on his chest, his shirt was open, and there was a wound on his chest, and there was blood coming out of the wound. And she said to him, what, what happened to you? And he said, oh, this was done to me. She said, who did this to you? He said, this was done to me by a man studying the Gita out in the woods. And he said no more, and he left. Husband came back, and he saw all the food, and he asked his wife about it. And she said, but you know, she said this peculiar thing. She said, when I looked at him, there was blood coming out of his wound in his chest. And when we asked him what the wound was about, he said, it was done by a man studying the Gita out in the woods. And at this point, the old man realized what had happened, and he passed out, he fainted. Swami Muktananda said to me, you see, when the man had underlined, he, with doubt, with doubt, had been the wound in Krishna. Swami Muktananda said, he said, you see, the Gita isn't a book about Krishna. The Gita is Krishna. The Gita is Krishna. And he said, you don't have to worry about teaching the Gita. That's none of your business. The Gita will teach itself. You know, Krishna will do it in spite of you. <laughs> so I have been taken off the hook by Swami Muktananda. I think the reason that um, when Marvin Casper asked me if I would teach at a new institute in Boulder, I said I would because I very, very highly honor uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. I think we are very, very fortunate to have such an extraordinarily evolved being in our midst. And I uh, have no ashrams, no students, no trip. I'm a student. And what I've been doing in the past few years is feeling that it was my dharma and we'll be discussing that term, ad nauseum. Uh, it is my dharma to support pure transmissions in America. Seems to be what my work is. So I've been doing benefits for Zen monasteries, for Hindu yogic ashrams, for Christian Benedictine monasteries, helping the Sufis, making announcements for the Hasids. Because it seems to me that rather than everybody necessarily coming together in big holy man jams to become all one right away, it would be best for us to honor the purity of these transmissions and let the amalgam or the uh, bubbling together or the soup be cooked inside each pilgrim, each one of us, rather than having the outer thing become all one a little too soon. Uh, I think the horror show about tradition that we are all coming out from under is likely the thing that happened in India at great length, at great, great extent, which was the attachment to the rituals and the ceremonies as ends in themselves in a mechanical, ritualistic, priestcraft way 
with the living spirit gone from them, and that's roughly what happened to the Christian church as opposed to the living Christ. And I think that one of our processes now is to be sophisticated enough not to thoroughly throw out the baby with the bath. The, a lot of us have come through throwing over one tradition after another. We've thrown over sexual traditions in this culture. We've thrown over economic and working conditions. We've thrown over social relations, marriage, communal family, uh, all kinds of political ones. And in most cases, that's come out of, in large part, a healthy awakening to the deadness of existing structures. In other cases, it's come out of our own rebelliousness. But somehow, we've gotten a little bit lost in thinking traditions per se are bad. One of the things that has turned me on a lot is uh, I've gone to a lot of traditional religious ceremonies in both the East and the West. And you go into a church, and what you often see is everybody going through this ritual as if they were doing their shopping list at the supermarket. They're singing songs about Christ on the cross, you know, but nothing's happening. And I listen to the words of the songs, and I look at the ceremony and the ritual, and it's all came out of the living spirit originally, but it got lost in the shuffle, and now it's just this mechanical stuff. But as I come back to it with eyes that are tuned to other planes of consciousness, and when I center enough and don't get lost in the reactiveness to the situation of, oh, this is drag. Suddenly, there it all is, the living spirit again. And I think that what a gathering of this nature is about is partly we are all being prepared. We are all being prepared to serve done. in the capacity of reinvesting a society with the living spirit. And that comes through our becoming it. Because the only thing you transmit from one human being to another is your being. All the fancy words aren't going to mean a damn thing. Now, why, when he said, what would you like to teach? I said the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita, or the yogas of the Bhagavad Gita. Well, the first reason, I think, and the most profound reason, is because of my guru. If there are two books which most characterize the quality of the transmission that I received from Maharaji, from my guru, uh, who has now left his body, uh, those two books are the Ramayana, Tulsidas's Ramayana, and the Bhagavad Gita. Part of my way of sharing with other people the grace of whatever happened to me in relation to this being in India is by using vehicles like the Gita and the Ramayana. Because although Maharaji never talked to me specifically, or maybe once or twice, about the Gita, when I study the Gita and look at the things he said to me, they always turn out to be the same stuff. So I can feel the parallels there. And the other part of I'm the a Gita is the honoring of a tradition. That I come out of the West as an intellect. Yeah, I don't want to listen to this no more. Now I want to touch your breasts. All right, let's see for something else. Maybe I'm too relaxed, actually. That's why I feel like drinking a coffee. Because it's very interesting, right? The pride 
I could have paused the recording to fill it purely with myself, right? I could have done so. I just ate some fondant, which you may know as this stuff that It's basically frosting. It's basically frosting, like a hard block of frosting that you can roll out and then put over a cake and I'm just eating it. Which may tell you something about the desperateness of my attempt to feel different or to find out what it is that I'm supposed to be doing right now. It's very hard on me, myself. And that's all right, because I chose it. And to be honest, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say about pride. I mean, it's so obvious already. What are you supposed to say about pride? Maybe it's pride that keeps me going with creating all this content. Maybe that's why nobody's, uh, at least from where I'm talking, you know, and that can change, of course, any second, right? It's like, you know, that's the only mentality that helps me to keep going. Because when I talk to people, even people, you know, that consider themselves to be friends, they start to question me about it. You think it's okay that your parents pay your apartment? Yeah, you just choose to do what you want to do. And you think it's okay that your parents pay your apartment? Yeah, apparently, man, otherwise I wouldn't do it. But it's these questions that you get. And I've already answered them. And now people come and they want answers. But I've already answered these questions. I mean, why do you concern yourself with me? I mean, you see what I mean? Why do you waste your time thinking about why I do things while you could be thinking about why you do things? So instead of saying, so you think it's okay that your parents pay your apartment while you do what you want? It's not just what I want, it's what I feel I have to do. And there's a different quality to this. Because it comes with a whole package of are you going to give up or are you going to push through? So what's pride, man? My parents pay my apartment. No, I'm not like proud about it. But maybe they are. Or maybe they think they help me. Or maybe they help themselves. 
or maybe there's a possibility that some people just have money and they want to support their children, right? So I was thinking about it. Why would I reject this opportunity? It would have been pride. And so I said, you know, if pride's going to hold me back from pursuing my dream, you know, maybe this isn't the way I thought it would be, but it's what I got. And so to me, pride is something that nobody really needs. You know, I could pride myself that I never smoke cannabis and that I never drink coffee. But to be honest, these things are also sometimes part of my art. And sometimes I smoke a joint and I think, why did she do that? And then I wake up and I've got more energy, right? It's like I, I smoke, I sleep, I wake up. Okay, nice. And then I wake up and I drink a coffee, I eat some frosting, <laughs> and then I roll a joint. I put mint into it, by the way. I already told you, Moroccan mint. No, friend, friend. I like the term brother in arms. Doesn't mean I have to hug everyone, it just means that. You know, he's a brother in arms. You know, you have a similar goal. Or you think you have until he screws you over, right? Until he obliterate, obliterates you with the fact that he just wanted you for his own greedy purposes. And that's possible, but always get to these boundaries with friends, right? And, I mean, I have a lot of things that I can do, you know. It's not a secret anymore. You know, I can do things in various ways, and somehow they're all ingenious. You know, that's just my perspective. But I just really like being like this. It's not just that I like being like this, it just turns out that I always was like this but nobody ever believed in me because maybe I was insecure but I think the problem was that they were insecure and I was allowing their insecurity to hold me back it's a possibility because people are really insecure but on the other hand if I would have been straightforward about this you know, I could have done it much earlier. But I also think I was waiting. Because you always have to consider that, you know, while you're suffering on the surface, or you're being depressed on the surface, you know, your spirit is always there waiting for an opportunity to shine. So while you're suffocating in shit, it's very hard to shine, you get what I mean? So what's pride, man? I mean, if masturbating gets me through a phase of depression and helps me to be, like, in a better mood. You know, I could say, you know, I'm part of the no-fat movement and I don't masturbate because, you know, I'm better than all the people that masturbate now. 
I also could say that, hey, masturbation helps me to deal with my depression, and so do cold showers, and so does drinking coffee, and so does, you know, playing frisbee in the park. Not with everyone. But just with, like, basically one friend. Who likes frisbee as much as I do. And I really have no problem with that. So there were times with that friend, for instance, where he was like trying to get rid of me or he was trying to test me or however you want to call that. And maybe you want to call it he was taking a piss on me, but he was setting boundaries is basically what he did. It's like now I need time for myself. And he got a little bit angry at that. Because, you know, sometimes I refuse to give in. I have that tendency. And so what happened was that he, like, almost screamed. Because he didn't understand what I was doing. I think I was just opening up truth or something. Or maybe he just didn't get why somebody wanted to be friends with him. And you may even say somebody like me. It's possible. Because he had friends before, I believe. So what's pride, if you will, right? It's like, what's pride? You know, is pride false? Is pride true? You know, I sometimes get dizzy when I smoke. And that's okay. I'm not sure if smoking is what I need, but it just turned out that I'm smoking. And that's why I like also Terence McKenna. Because he said, he said, she said,
I'm just gonna light this, although I'm scared of it. Because he said, why can't you just like, on what kind of high horse are you sitting that you cannot humble yourself to make a pact with a plant? And that's true. I see. Because I have to be honest that now that I smoked, I feel a little bit more clear. But it's like a fickle clear, if you know what I mean. It's like there's something that I'm trying to grab. There's something that I'm trying to hold on to. And it just evades me. It evades me. Basically, at all costs. And when I meet friends and they're all men, and sure, they probably prepare me for what's to come. So what's that say? It's tough to become a man because we have no initiation rites anymore. There is no chief in front of you that shows you how to be a man. Your father might be his version of a man. And you have to know where to draw the boundaries. You have to know Right, it's like I like Harry Potter. Does that make me less manly or something? I don't think so. For the first time in my life I have a friend. Like a real friend where I think like that's a friend like. But not just a friend. Also a man. But we're also figuring out together how to be man. And that's what I like. Right? We learn to communicate with each other. You know, if I would be proud now, every time he says something, that strikes home. He may not even know that it strikes home, but it strikes home. 
So we had a conversation and he was questioning me about my motives to accept money from my parents and just continue to create content. And I was trying to communicate to him the way I roll, right? And he didn't quite get it. And then I was telling him that, you know, everybody gives me shit already. Like, why do you have to give me shit as well now? But he also gave me something else because he basically freed me of my, de my desire to please people. Which is not entirely true, but it's a teaching, right? I mean, he questioned me. And sometimes I feel a bit nauseous when people start questioning me. And there may be a topic that I can work with. But I would, if I would be proud now, once he started asking me, you know, for my motives, because he wanted to understand how can you do this? How can you accept money for, from your parents, live in an apartment that they pay, and still do the work that you're doing without having any kind of monetary benefit from it at the moment? Which is untrue because I already earned money. Not in the sense that, you know, I can afford my own apartment. But in terms of spiritual work, I can certainly afford this apartment. Because I know the price that I paid to have the apartment. You know? I had my brother shout at me dragged me across the room like a sack of potatoes. I had my father drag me down, you know, three or four steps to get me out of my brother's apartment. And it might be true that I haven't told you this story yet. So let's talk about pride, my friend. Let's talk about pride. What's pride? It's bullshit. Because what happened, I had the distinct feeling that I was supposed to go to my... I actually wanted to go to my brother's wife because we were living in the same building. And I prepared myself and I thought I was going to up, go up there with a piece of paper and a pencil. And I would talk to her about spiritual union or something. Because I had the feeling that, right, I'm just going to say it. Between my brother and his wife, there were some problems. Like, my brother had a lot of repressed anger. And he was letting it out on people, you know, that were willing to take it, which was his wife and maybe his child. I don't know. I don't think his child, but his wife. Like, it's like, you know, I think my brother is a bit proud. And where that got us was, I realized there was something going on. I was trying to get to the wife. So the, that she could get to her husband. And then, you know, it was a Monday and I thought, well, nobody saw me, it's just her. You know, I'm just going to go up there. And I'm going to give her a talk about, you know, man and wife and, you know, how it all connects and that you have to support each other, blah, blah, blah. And then I knocked and then he answered. It's like, oh, crap. 
Now I have to go through with this. I had a pencil and I had a piece of paper. And I walked in there and he was on the couch and the whole apartment was a mess. I'm just telling you not to shame anyone, but I also think my family will never hear this. And anybody who managed to listen to this point, I think he respects me enough that I can openly talk about this without them like sending bad vibes to my family, right? Because that's not what it's about. It's about the things that I did to get to where I am. And so I walked in there and he was on the couch and she was sitting next to him with his or with their child in her arms and he looked very sick like. And she was trying to take care of him and the child at the same time. And I went in and he looked at me and he was like, yeah, I'm really sick. And I said, this is cosmic intervention, which is a tough thing to say. When you're in somebody else's apartment. He was like all curious and I sat down and I said, well, I want to show you something. And I drew, you know, I started to write, you know, this is like, I don't know what I said. I don't know. What did I write? You know, this is nature and this is the cosmos and in the middle, there's like man and wife. And at this point, he's like, I have, you know, I don't want to hear this shit anymore from you, this spiritual stuff. I'm not like this. And he started screaming and suddenly he was standing. And he was screaming at me from the top of his lungs. Get out now, get out now, leave the apartment. And I started shaking, you know, like inner shaking. I felt the turmoil he was in and he was standing there I was sitting and he was shouting 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 and his wife started his child started to cry and his wife said we're gonna call the police and I just thought we'll do it I didn't say that because you don't want to get people to do things that you rather would not like to happen so in a sense I was in charge of the situation I just came to their place and made a sitting and said, listen, this is truth. You're acting like a child, my friend. And you're my brother, because that's why I'm going to go so far for you. And he was screaming and he was screaming and I just kept sitting, looking at them, because that's what truth does. It has to say nothing. It just has to be there. And then from his perspective, it was probably, holy fuck, I'm slouching off of the couch. And suddenly my brother, which is this weird, like, being that I can't really understand. That kind of comes from somewhere else, which is how I feel. Well, I also seem to think or feel or know that we actually come from the same place. And now you can tell how smoking actually helps me to create content. Because it opens me up to this kind of higher wisdom, which is hard for me to get to when I wake up and I feel all these things and I'm in the, you know, in the midst of all the suffering. 
And then I get up and I have a feeling that's nagging me, drink a coffee, smoke a joint, and I'm like, I don't want to do it. Because I feel fear, which is not fear. It's just energy that's stuck. And then I do all the things to try to alleviate myself from this suffering. Which now is, I ate this frosting. I also masturbated, without ejaculation, by the way, which is possible. If you know how to channel it inwards. Which is something that I feel like... I owe myself to learn so that when I'm with a woman, I can keep going for probably hours. And this also means that the less I ejaculate, the stronger my penis is going to become. Because my penis is going to learn to hold the energy in longer. You know, it's what Mantak Chia calls sharpening of the sword. Now, if I would be proud... about my sexual powers I would never learn anything because I would think I'm the best fucker there is you know so women should line up to screw me and that's like pride right it's like fucking as many women as you can so you have like a very high number that you can talk about to people but the truth is you know nothing about love because love doesn't jump from one to the next to the next to the next Love is basically an investment. You keep loving certain people, like, extensively. And one day, you know, they'll open up enough to you that you can call them a friend. Or you could call your mother a friend, or your father a friend, or your brother a friend, or your sister-in-law a friend. And even your nephew or your niece, you could call them as friends. You can even then call a rabbit a friend, a dog a friend, a plant a friend, yourself a friend, your apartment a friend. And even the mayor and the president, you could say, you know, there's a level where we could be friends. But how far am I going to become friends with the president? Because he's really far away. And I don't really know what kind of guy he is. You know, I assume he won't play frisbee with me. I assume he won't sit down, have a coffee and drink tea and play chess with me. You know, I'm afraid we will probably never dance around the fire. But with the people that I live with and I spend time with, I can see that happening. And sometimes, when you awaken to spiritual truth, which is the belief or the understanding that we are more than just this physical thing, and that telepathy actually works, and that I hear other people's thoughts, and then I have to be aware of this because part of my depression is my ability to dive into other people's suffering and sort it out for them. And I can do this by doing art. And I can do this by making music, which is part of my art. Like everything I do is basically art. So if I have my room and it's a mess, then I see it as a piece of my art. 
But if I would be proud, I would always keep my apartment clean and never allow myself to have a mess. Or I would keep my apartment clean but have an inner mess. And I would try to whitewash it by cleaning my apartment even when I feel shit. So sometimes I allow myself to get into states of mess and madness, which inspires my genius because if I'm like in a mess, you know, I'm going to do everything to work myself out of it again, which is I wake up, I feel restless, I don't want to do anything, I just want to keep sleeping, and then I start one step at a time. First, maybe you get up and you drink something, or you start eating something, or you go to the bathroom, or you clean yourself. Well, in my case, I got up, I was restless, I was thinking of what to do, and I was basically weighing these options with the scale of my analytical mind, which does it for me by allowing me to see like to visualize basically the options that I have at the moment. And then I use my feeling to test them, like to go into the vision of, you know, how would I feel if I would, let's say, masturbate now? How would I feel if I would cook now? You know, cooking wasn't even an option yet. It was for a second. And then I got up and I thought, you know, I have these bananas in the fridge. I could make more pancakes or bread. And then my feeling was like urging me to make a coffee. And then I was doubting that. And then I came here to sit down. And then I thought of smoking a doobie. And then I just started talking. And then I found the strength to make the coffee. Without having the slightest idea where it would propel me into. Which is then what I'm afraid, right? It's like I get up. I feel miserable and then I'm afraid to seek bliss. And when I'm afraid to seek bliss, then I'm channeling the energy that I have available into fear and into fearful behavior. But the way that, you know, I learned to do it is to just accept that something is heavy, you know. I feel fear and I just see it as a heavy emotion that I have to transform into something else, into action, into doing, into something creative, whether that's making food, working out, you know, doing like asanas from yoga, or just freestyling it, or doing like planks, or doing crochet, or going back to bed, or showering, or brushing your teeth, or flossing them, or chewing on cloves, or, in my case, setting aside the first food thing and then imagining how it would be better, I, I realized I first need something to kick me a little. And so I, you know, first rendered a video for YouTube. And then I started with this episode and I sat down and then came the resolution, I'm going to make coffee and then I went to do that and I played some Ramdas. Which gives me some ideas about my life also, because the story he told in the beginning of the Yogas of the Bhagavad Gita, which is a talk from, I think, like 1973 or something, but there's so much truth in it, 
If you just keep listening to that, you know, it's going to give you something. Sure, you could also just listen to me and maybe you won't get it at first. But I always like to tell people like, why don't you start with my podcast with the first episode there is. You know, if you have trouble understanding what I'm talking about, you know, this is the best advice I can give you. If you like my podcast and you feel like you're missing something, start with episode one. I think it's perspective. Because that's when I was really fresh in the business. You know, I was like very insecure about my spiritual doings and stuff. What I was supposed to do and how to do it. That if you would start to listen with episode one and just keep working through them, you would get to this episode and certainly understand what I was talking about. Because it's not only that I talk about things, but I also guide you to do things for yourself. Right? So you see me doing art. Well, do you like art? Like, is that something you could picture yourself doing? Because whether or not you've done it already, you will probably have the secret wish or the idea that you could be an artist. And I never thought I could be an artist. And I had no real understanding of art. But as I grew spiritually, I realized I started to develop the need to express myself in more than just like words. Because I realized I had trouble communicating with others because I was giving too much meaning to the words they said. And I was failing to hear what they were really saying. Because what this friend was basically saying was, you know, I want to understand how you can do this. How are you able to just stand above the fact or just simply accept the fact without feeling shame? That your parents are paying your apartment at the age of 34. And basically all you do is art. You basically do only what you want. And that comes with the cost of your parents are paying your apartment. And he was asking me, how can you do this? You know, I want to understand. Please tell me. Because when I started to tell him like, man, you're taking a piss on me. He said, no, I mean, that's what I got from what he said. And we had to go through probably half an hour of really intense dialogue to get to this place where we could even remotely feel what it means to be the other person. And what I said to him, what I heard in a song that he played was, you know, do you, man. Do you. It's called freedom. And that's basically... Something like a skill I developed to just keep sitting and it's very hard believe me To keep sitting with a friend and when it gets like a little bit like tough you just keep going Without getting angry Because he said to me previously that it makes him angry if people don't understand him No, that was somebody else, but he could have said it as well And now we worked through that right there was a misunderstanding we proved to each other now multiple times that this friendship is important to us. By continuously coming back to it. And that's a challenge, right? 
That's a real, real challenge. That's an investment. You see potential in something and you invest into it. Now, nobody saw the potential in myself that I saw, or maybe they saw it, but they wanted to funnel my potential into something that they thought was valuable. Like my father thought it was valuable for me to become an, or to be an engineer in the field that he understands, which is the industry. Because he's been working for the industry all his life. Now I'm starting to understand also this kind of relationship. Because if I talk to my father, you know, after the situation that happened, my, you know, my brother kept shouting at me, he shouted, and I was sitting, and at one point I stood up. And then my brother said, you know, look what you're doing to my son. And I said, you're the one that's screaming. And that's why he's crying, which is true. And his wife was like, you know, yeah, you can't do this. You have to leave now. Please go. But it wasn't really honest. It wasn't really honest. Right? She just like supported my brother, of course. But not in a kind of a forceful way. It was actually a good situation when my brother was just shouting, shouting, shouting. And then my, suddenly my mother was right in my face. And she said, the first thing she said was, we're going to call the police. Like, what the fuck? And then my father came and he was also like, you know, what are you doing? You have to leave. And I was like, what are you on about? You know, if you want me to leave, you just have to say it. Right? But don't threaten me with the police, you only have to ask, and I will go. Right? I mean, if you really wanted me out, you would send me out like that friend did in the Netherlands. And I still consider him as a friend because he gave me back my family, in that sense. Or he guided me towards my family. He probably didn't know that. He just thought, this fucking guy has to go now. <laughs> and he did. Without force, just guided me out. Yeah. And you know the story, probably how that happened, it's all in my content. And so you can basically listen to how I got to talk like this in such a way. And the end of the story was that my brother said, I've had enough now. And then he, you know, tried to grab me and I just let myself fall. I'm quite heavy, you know. You know, if you want to carry me, go ahead, man. You try to carry me. I'm not a lightweight. You know, it's not that my brother is weak. But he has no idea what I'm carrying. Like the amount of stuff. Every person that rejects me... I work hard to love them anyway, which means that I carry a lot of hearts in my heart. And these people appreciate that because they know they can always come back to me. So I have to make sure they don't overly use me, that they have to stand on their own feet. And I think that was the situation that my brother was relying too much on others. She was sitting on the couch and he was like complaining about how sick he is while his wife was sitting there having no time to clean and a child in her arms. So she was 
Like my brother was kind of forcing her to mother her. And that's how he was smothering her. Because probably he was so angry or afraid, you know, it's basically the same. Now, there were so many emotions inside of him that were making him heavy. And when he screamed, right, it's like screaming is very powerful to get off a lot of things of your chest. Sometimes I scream not because I'm just angry, but it's just too much. Like, whatever it is, it just feels too much. So I sometimes went to scream in the forest. You know, now I said, you know, I'm going to stop screaming and I'm going to start recording episodes again. But sometimes the really the screaming really helped. And I knew that because I had done it myself and I realized that some people don't have the strength to go alone to the forest at night and scream. Because maybe also their environment doesn't support it. Because they all kind of depend on each other, right? It's like the wife depends on the husband, the husband depends on the wife. But if husband and wife, you know, of course they should depend on each other. So you can't just go off into the forest and scream all the time or go hiking on your own. No. You spend time with your family and then you go into the forest together because you're a tribe now. And that's why I also learned to spend time at home alone so that I'm, you know, prepared to what's to come, which is being home with my wife and then later with my children or our children because I can't have children on my own in that sense, right? And adoption is not an option because I want a woman to be there so that I can keep doing what I'm doing. So my brother grabbed me and I let myself fall and he dragged me like four meters into his entrance hall. Then I kept laying there and my brother went off into his room and he was kind of like laughing to himself like holy fuck, fuck what just happened. You know I just screamed at the top of my lungs and it felt really good. You know that's what I saw in him. Of course he couldn't just say that. So he was kind of shocked but in a good way. And then my father kept standing there and my mother like, leave now, leave now, blah, blah, you know, go. And then I said to my father, you know, yeah, you go ahead. And then he was like, ah, I've had enough now. And then he grabbed me and I was already lying on the ground. He pulled me down four stairs and then was lying kind of in the entrance. And then my mother came and she wanted to close the door and I said, leave now. I'm going to close the door. Let me be now. And then I got up and I said, cheers. And I closed the door and I went to my room. And I was like, holy fuck, that just happened. And I felt an incredible amount of pressure building up. Like, that guy has to go now. Without like, you know, we hate you and that's why you have to leave, but you're too much for us now. Right? It's like, if I sit in a room, you know, you can feel that I'm there. You know what I mean? 
And I was like living in that small room. And the story I was telling with that dog, I, I never really finished it. But I had the dog in my room and I smoked Amanita muscaria. And maybe I'm going to stretch it out a little more. <laughs> you know, just a little bit. Nah, I think I'm going to tell it this time. Because it really fits. And the dog was... You know, after half an hour, the dog was starting to, like, regurgitate. And then I sent her out because I realized this is really heavy energy. You know, like, the energy where I live is, like, solid, if you know what I mean. And that's why some people, they can't be in my presence for too long. They actually get sick. Like, some people get into my presence and they start, like, burping. Blech. Or yawning, excessive yawning. And that's very heavy because it draws out a lot of your energy. Because I'm basically like a, a spiral of energy. You know, it's, I'm like channeling energy at an incredible amount. And that's just what's happening. Simply by continuously readjusting myself or maintaining my center basically but if I feel like I'm starting to judge the situation as uncomfortable or detestable or sickening or tiring I constantly try to find the perspective that allows me to enjoy it and to see the teaching and the benefit from being together with another being and that means that I'm basically holding the space for open for communication and for understanding. Because I want to understand and the other person wants to understand. And suddenly we are beginning to communicate at a much higher level. So if I would be proud, I, was always, I would always walk around with my chest like pressed out, you know, and my cheeks pressed tightly like, oh, you know, I'm the best there is. And that's basically the conversations I have with most people. They're constantly trying to be on top, which is very annoying because then they're starting to, you know, they're trying to downsize you, to dethrone you, basically. And in that sense, yes, I'm sitting on the throne because I'm the master. You know, somebody once said to me, you know, you're the boss. She said it in German, Du bist der Endgegner. And I was like, what do you mean? Because we cooked together. And she was trying to get at me. She just didn't manage. And there was a very intense moment where she was like having a go at me. And then, you know... The woman I am with was also there and she said, you know, she was like, she didn't know, you know, she thought we were fighting and it was really bad. And I was like, you know, I'm just setting boundaries. You want to be whiny and, you know, slouch off? Yes, sorry, man. I have food to cook. I have no time for your bickering. So easy, either you push through, you know, or you shut up and then leave, you know. 
If you can't do it, go and sleep. You know, I can do your work, you know, no problem. I can run this kitchen on my own. No, there's no problem. But if I want to make bread, I'm going to make bread. And if you're going to say you don't want me to make bread because it's too much and you want to do something else, then I'm going to make bread. Because that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to make awesome bread. And I did it and people loved it. Yeah, and some people had problems to assist me in that. Because if I'm, you know, if I'm on the go, I'm on the go. And then I'm going. And if I have a kitchen where I can cook whatever the fuck I want, I'm gonna go nuts in there because I love cooking. But that means somebody has to do the cleaning. And I'm very bad at the cleaning. I can do it, you know, I learned. Sure, you know, that was probably the problem because I was only doing the cooking and never any cleaning. Well, maybe that's just who I am. I'm mostly cooking also in my own life. You know, I'm occasionally cleaning. But I'm more like, you know, I'm going nuts in the kitchen. You know, I'm cooking because it wants to flow, right? I love cooking. So I'm always looking for places where I can cook, to be honest. Yesterday I made an omelette with cheese inside and like mushrooms and peppers. No, peppers I didn't use. So yeah, I think what I really should do is just go to my parents and cook. But if I would be proud, I wouldn't do that because I would say, they have to come to me now, right? They have to come to me now. That's what I would do. When I would be proud. But I know these people now and I know that they will never do that because they're afraid. And they're emotionally kind of limited, restricted by their fears and these secret expectations and probably trauma or longings. But also their ability to, you know, they always create distances because they close their hearts and I know how this is because they actually never did that. But other people did and I had to live with that, right? Sometimes people close themselves off and sometimes it may be temporarily and sometimes for a very long time and then there's no way to get to them unless you would spend time with each other. From a distance it's nearly impossible to it is possible i don't have to speak with you to learn how to love you i don't have to see you or touch you or sleep with you or spend time with you or look you in the eyes to learn how to love you all i need is basically a feeling of who you are and if i've met you once i know how your energy feels and that means if I met you once, once, or I made some experiences with you, and then we are apart from each other, I can just tap into how do I feel about you. And when I realize there's a lot of hatred towards you, like severe hatred, okay, that's where I start to love you. 
I'm gonna look at the situations that come out of the hatred or that the hatred is showing me or that turned into the hatred because I was judging them. I was looking at them from only one side, you know. I judged the situation as something was bad about it but because I don't want to take responsibility for what has happened, I just projected to whoever was involved in this. And that may be a group of people, because there's always somebody else, so I'm looking for the culprit. You know, I want to push it off onto someone or something else. So it's maybe it's the situation that was bad. Maybe it was the people that introduced us that were bad. No, that's like when you're demonizing. And then you get back to maybe, you know, I was the one who fucked it up. You know, that's usually how it starts. You know, I'm the asshole. I did it all wrong. Or you reject that immediately and you say, no, it was them. So you can basically, either way how you do it is you demonize the one thing and you angelize the other. You say either I'm the angel and they're the devils or they're the angels and I'm the devil. A better thing is, you know, I'm angel and devil, and they're angel and devil, which means it's all the same. You know, it happened the way it happened, and there's a lesson to be learned. If you love someone, you have to appreciate them, but you also have to appreciate yourself. Because if you only appreciate other people, then in that situation that I had, when I was sitting there and he was starting to question me about my motive to accept money from my parents and do the work that I'm doing. Then I would have basically started to suck up to him because I would, you know, it's like I love others, but I have no love for myself, which means if he would start criticizing me, I would say, oh, yes, you're right. You know, you're so right. And I would keep doing that and I would lose myself again because the truth is that I know why I'm doing this. I'm doing it because my feeling says this is what, you know, that's the right thing to do. Because you want to work for love, basically. You want to work for life. And the best way I can work for life and for love is be with the people that I love and that I've known all my life and that have raised me which are the only people that I can give back to because I know what they've already given me and that's the idea of family and parents and grandparents I mean I always said that if I ever have the space which I believe I will have because I'm working for it to have my own family and that if my parents were getting sick of being alone you know, I would be definitely open to the possibility of them living with us. Without a doubt. Even temporarily at times. You know, come over. Stay for two weeks. You know. And that's like special relationships that I have. Where I really get to know people so well that I would want them to stay with us sometimes. I would have a room for that. And I would love it. Not always, of course. 
And best would be probably to have really a lot of space. Where people can come and they just have their own apartment or their own trailer. You know, like forest space I'm talking about, really open space. But if I would be proud, right? And I was a bit proud, but not really. I think I was more like... I was desperate. I don't think I was ever really proud. I tried being proud of the way I look, which some people think is handsome. You know, some pe sometimes people say you can wear whatever you want, and I was like, yeah, but I'm still insecure about it, you know what I mean? You know, there's always this bit of humble in the way that I see myself, right? Sometimes I get into this, you know, I'm the best there is, and that also comes from smoking. But the reason I smoke is because if I'm always in this, you know, I'm a piece of shit and I can't do anything. That's <sighs> yeah, terrible. And so I smoke and drink a coffee. You know, so I at least, you know, become a bit of an angel to myself. But it's all, you know, it's all rational. It's all relative. It's not rational. Yeah, rational. You know, it's always a portion. Because what's rationalization? It's basically breaking it down and putting it into a ratio, you know? So it's like, what's good, what's bad? I mean, you can rationalize climate change into it's normal. I mean, I've been really working because I've studied environmental protection and... I heard other versions of why the climate is changing. I heard other versions. You know, people say it's because of CO2. And then people say it's about deforestation, which I believe is the most likely thing to be true. And then they say it's CO2. And then, you know, they hammer together some data and they make it look like, you know, the hockey stick. And then they say, you see, it's CO2. So we have to start making an industry of CO2 and we have to start reducing it. And then you hear a talk of somebody that says that's all bullshit. Because if you look at the raw data, which later wasn't available anymore, which first was from the IPCC, I had a professor that taught this stuff. And he said, you know, I... I'm working in this business and I received the raw data because you could download it in the beginning when they came up with the hockey stick. I don't know if it was 2009. I'm not quite sure. Would be a nice coincidence because that's when I started studying environmental protection. And, you know, let's just get to this. What basically then happened was he showed us the raw data. Matthias Petzel, P-A-E-T-Z-L. He works in Sungdal, which is in Norway. And that's the Song Ok Fjordjanje University College. And he's a professor in... Glaciology, I believe, but he is 
he has focused on sediment cores from fjords. Because a fjord is underneath fresh water, and then on top of it, which comes from the glaciers, right? It's fresh water that comes from the glaciers. So a fjord is like you have the ocean, and then you have basically kind of like rivers that lead inward and that are being fed by water that comes from glaciers and rainfall and snow because in Norway in winters they have a lot of snow and when the snow melts in the summer it feeds these fjords with water and on top of this thing is or it's the other way around underneath is salt water from the ocean and on top of this thing is the fresh water I think that's how it is. Cooler water... No, cooler water would sink. So it would actually make more sense if the glacial water is underneath. I don't know, man. It's something like this. But there's no turbulence at the bottom. And that's why sediment, you know, it's just debris is falling down, forming into sediment. And that's why when you take a core from that and you look at it, you can go through the different stages that the earth went through. So you can say, okay, at this depth, there is a lot of green matter, a lot of plant material, and then comes a lot of ash, which would then be, for example, a volcano eruption. You know, and then you can see, you can measure also the CO2 in there. But mostly the materials that you find, you know, and the amount of animals, right? And then you can say, you know, these were times where it was probably warm. And these were times where it was... These were times where it was warm and these were times where it was cold because when it's warm you have more living organisms and when it's cold you have less and I think they compared it to what they found in ice cores because in ice right you have like these thick ice crusts and they also keep building up right you have like layers so you have one layer of ice and it keeps building up and that means that lower layers of ice have air and the environmental composition of air or something right like this frozen into them and even like probably organisms microbacteria and stuff like this it's possible right and that means if you take an ice core and you analyze it chemically, you can make predictions of how the climate used to be. And that showed that, you know, the way the IPCC put it is they made the graphs and then they said, you know, 
the last 10,000 years or whatever, or however many hundreds of thousands of years, Um, they say, you know, if you look at the data, because they also compressed it, the graph, so that you couldn't really make out details. But it was like, you know, CO2 went up and temperature went up. You know, basically at the same time, there were like certain peaks where temperature and CO2 were rising. And they said that this graph shows that temperature is depending on CO2. You know, that's and then at the end it's like there's a, like a huge increase, you know, never before. And that's because, you know, we're producing so much CO2 and that's where the temperature is rising. And so they took data that they had from tree estimates and such things as sediment cores or ice cores. And they created estimates for temperature and CO2 and that's how they got this graph and then the last bit that thing which created the hockey stick basically is that they added absolute data which is data that you actually recorded you know in like human memory and relative data is what you get from estimates which means you take a tree you chop off you know, the top bit, and then you look at the rings. And then you calculate um, from the tree rings, it's like each year is one ring, they say, right? But if it was like, let's say, there's a small ring, there's a small ring, there's a big ring, then they would say in the big ring, there was like higher temperatures, and more water, let's say. So the tree could grow very much. But what they don't say is, basically, that's what I just realized, you know, what you can't get from tree rings is, maybe they were years where it was complete frost, or maybe even a drought where the tree didn't grow at all, where he was just staying alive, if you know what I mean, or waiting. Which means it doesn't really give you anything real. You know, it's just like you make up a story. You know, you look at the tree and then you start thinking, you know, what kind of story. And then because you use mathematics to express your story, it seems really smart because most people don't understand that. And that's why, you know, science is getting so much credit for the bullshit you know, it's just storytelling with the use of equations and stuff. Just a different form of expressing things, you know. E equals mc square, right? It means nothing. I mean, that's what spirituality says, you know. Read the Bhagavad Gita. You know, it's duality. Everything is relative. Yeah, sure, man. You know, it's just like, maybe he said it in a really simplistic way but ultimately he also said that room is expandable 
and that if you're an object and you're rolling over a plane that you create some kind of weight in the matrix and that's certainly true right so I have a lot of weight which means they couldn't get me out of there because I'm just too heavy man you know I'm a giant I may look like a little kid but I'm a giant and so that all happened and then they say yes yeah, CO2 is doing it and so the hockey stick is at the end they used the absolute data which they got from actual temperature recordings but you cannot do that if you put relative and absolute data in a graph you have to say it that whatever you say the graph says is relative as well relative to your understanding or your intention of creating the graph maybe they wanted to find something and it was a good approach but they never allowed to question it and that's the problem also with corona right they never allowed us to question it because they were so desperate to push it through because the industry needs money they need energy and so they're trying to force it out of us because just tax isn't enough for them because they're really greedy right And a more likely thing that is changing or impacting the climate is deforestation and the concrete invasion, basically. Because we're just creating deserts, so sure it's getting hotter, man. You know, and therefore CO2 is just a side effect of deforestation, which means if you just stop producing more co2 you know that ain't gonna do it you just have to plant trees lots of them and like not like these monopolized farms where you only have one sort of tree so that you can harvest them in rows no you have to like make forests because these plantations they don't really generate rain because there's no stable vegetation because you always you plant it you chop it off you plant it you chop it off but there are no trees that bring up water from the depth because their roots reach so far which is why in Germany there were planted a lot of spruce trees in like monocultures that's how it's called and these are like flat rooters they're not designed to bring up water from the depth you know they rely on surface water and they normally grow in like higher regions where they get a lot of runoff because in the mountains it's raining a lot right and they are used to rocky surfaces and now they put them onto yeah they're used to having rocks around that they can crawl around but they were put onto just like earth normal soft soil and if you normally root on soft soil your roots have to go like deep so that you can anchor yourself which means your roots have to be you know you have to have basically as much weight on your roots as you have on top 
You know, the crown and the root has to be the same thing. This is getting, like, out of hand. This is crazy. Like, how does this all even connect? Of course, I'm very grounded. I'm rooted, you know. I'm rooted. I've rooted myself into this area. Which just means it's hard to leave now. Which just means I invested a lot and I said I'm going to stay most of the time. So, if you take a spruce tree, which is used to growing on rocks, which weigh him down, so he just has to crawl around the rocks with his roots. And dig into the rocks with his roots. Yeah, no chance, man. Because there's nothing to hold on to, and which meant that when there were storms, these trees were just falling like the sticks that they were. There were these thin sticks. And that's when, you know, the bark beetles started having a feast, man. And now all these spruce trees are gone. And now they realize we need a mixed forest that is natural to here. So basically you have to do nothing. Nature will do it itself, but you know, that's what then the pride also is. Humans pride themselves that they do something for nature, but nature does its thing on its own. You know, we just have to be like shepherds, right? You don't tell the sheep how to graze or how to mate. I mean, they're just doing it. All the shepherd does is, you know, make sure that they keep together, which is why he has a dog and stuff, right? So, you know, it's like shepherding when you spiritually awaken. You have to shepherd people into their own bliss. Sometimes people don't want to. It's really hard and they shout at you. But then comes this kind of relaxation. Okay, he really got me there, right? He just made a standing or a sitting. It's like, stop with this right now. And that means, you know, he gave it away. His wife will never fall for this again. Because what she probably got out of this was, oh, crap. He was, like, acting sick and then he can, like, do things like this. Yeah, sure, you know, now I see through you. Which is good, because now she can keep him in check. Just like, yeah, you're tired, I'm tired as well. Which is then what means, you know... You have to learn to hold yourself. You have to learn to hold yourself, that's it. So the one thing or the one reason I accept money from my parents is because I realized that they really wanted to pay the apartment because they felt bad for what they had done to me.
or they felt bad that they just jumped on me altogether. My father mentioned it before, and I first refused to talk to him because he's coming he was coming from a, a weird place to start a conversation about what had happened. But I realized that he was opening up to communicating about traumatic events, which is good. And so at first like acted a bit weird. He came to me, don't we want to talk about it? And I was like doing like sign speech, being a bit like a monkey, and he was like, Don't you get like, can't you understand what I'm saying? Am I expressing myself weirdly? And then I went back to my room and I was like feeling a bit smug and probably proud of how I had taken a piss on him. And then I was remembering the woman that I love and that I have devoted myself to. And it guided me to go and speak with him, which pissed me off, but I also a bit reluctantly gave into it. And so I went and I sat down and we spoke and he felt relieved. And I told him why I had done what I had did, what I did, that I saw that, or I felt, I saw that my brother was really angry and that he was letting it out on his wife by shutting her out, basically. Which is not like letting it out on your wife, it's just like, you know, it's like keeping it so close to your chest that it's suffocating you. Which means that you're so afraid to explode that you rather just do nothing. And he could explode in my face. And so I told him that. And then my father said that when he heard the screaming, he thought that my brother was throwing my wa- his wife out of the apartment. And I basically took care of that because he had sensed it as well. But he was afraid to act. Or he didn't know how to. Or he had no strength to confront him. And I just did. And I told him that. And he looked at me in a completely new way. And the next day he came, he said, so we, you know, we have an apartment for you if you want it. And I considered it and I said, yeah, I'll take it. The reason I said that was because I saw that he wanted to pay me back for what I had done. And so, you know, that's like self-value. You know, that's like appreciation for what I did and making choices that were hard. So where's pride gonna get you? You're gonna be alone, like Mr. Scrooge, like old Ebenezer. And you're gonna hate everyone, because you pride yourself to be rich, for instance. When you pride yourself to be rich, it's really hard to be people that you think are poor, because you think they're underneath you. So it's either way, right? It's like, you know, you may be proud, but other people also have their pride. And there's like, of course, it's always false pride. So you can also pride others, right? You can pride others to be rich and then you think you're just a little piece of shit. Which is the problem most people have with the state because they're like angelizing the state and demonizing themselves. And then it's like, you know, I'm so happy that the state exists because, you know, I could never do what they do. Yeah, like ripping people off and forcing them into paying money, it's like, good job, man, you know, you're a real saint. Thank you for forcing us to, you know, feed you and keep you alive with a stick and with 
stupid rules and regulations and the presence of the police and stuff. You know, they're really acting like we're all criminals, right? It's like, you know, we're watching over you. Yeah, sure. You know, that's why I can't really take it serious if people say, you know, I have no idea what's possible, but they say that all phones are basically being tapped into, and that's why you know, I installed Google Maps, but I'm really doubting that I want this on here. I think I'm just going to keep deleting it. You know, if I need it sometimes, I can install it. And now I can finally look up IPCC hockey stick. Let's see. It's probably a Wikipedia article. Published in 2001. That was fast. That was fast. Um, so yeah, 2001, where was I there? Just at school. So I had no idea this was happening. Of course, you heard it a bit from the news, but it was all kind of a mystery to me. But anyway, I studied environmental protection. I have the insight. I have the knowledge. You see, I can talk about it. And that's why reforestation, which Dr. John D. Louis has proven is basically the only way of reviving an environment that has been depleted through agriculture. Because there was a space, I think it was in China, and I think it was like 30,000 hectares, so fairly big, and it was considered to be a desert which means that it rains, but the soil is so dry that you know, it just runs off as surface water and also basically washes away all the seeds. And then it just goes into the rivers and streams, and from there on it's just going to the ocean, which, is means, which means then it cannot be utilized as groundwater anymore. Because it's just going back to the ocean, and that's sure, yeah water levels in the ocean may be increasing because of this. And then they started to, you know, plow the soil, plant seeds and water them. It was like a huge terrace, like a valley and stuff. And then as vegetation came back, and you first have, of course, grasses and, you know, like, saplings and stuff and you take care of them and you water them and then you start having a vegetation layer that will happen fairly quickly within one year you can have a layer of grass or something or maybe you first start with the saplings because the saplings will grow into trees and these trees will then bind moisture in the soil with their roots and they will also dig up the soil 
into deeper regions, which means that also animals can come back, like worms need soft soil. They cannot survive in, like, dried out soil. And so they will dig through this and loosen it up and ferment things and then you have bacteria back and then nutrients become available through decomposition and stuff because bacteria and all these small life forms they also die and then they are being decomposed by fungi and these kinds of things and you will have mosquitoes and flies and they die yeah, and they get taken up also by the roots and then the roots form symbiotic symbiotic relationships with also bacteria, you know, mucorrhiza. It's like, I think, bacteria that grow in the roots of trees and they digest basically the soil and stuff and break it apart and then the tree gets nutrients from that so it all becomes to like it you know once you have the first layer going the trees which also basically draw up the energy they lift the energy of the place they bring out then water from deeper regions and then when it rains the water falls or slowly sinks into the ground and then you have more groundwater which is then what the trees can use to grow stronger and bigger and bigger and then the environment starts to become in harmony again because the trees have now produced also groundwater and then you have grass and then there's this thing called evapotranspiration which means that the trees sweat basically you know the sun shines on them and then photosynthesis happens and one product of photosynthesis is water which is why you know when you sweat it's also something like this you know it's just transpiration so trees leaves Plants, they transpire. Animals transpire. And that then goes as vapor. It's like condensing somehow, right? And then it goes up into the, the air as moisture. And then you have the formation of clouds. And then you have rain. And then you have weather and stuff. And also storms, right? It's like natural. And it took them 20 years to get them to that. 20 years, it's just nothing. You can do that. If you start today, you can do it. And there are more examples of this. That's just one. That's just one. And I've seen it various places where they said this was a desert and we started to work on it. And now there's trees again. 20 years. And then you can just leave it the way it is. You could even do agriculture in such an area if you keep the harmony going. Which is why, you know, if you just create an acre, if you plant crops, and there are no trees, 
that can bring up the groundwater and produce rain. No, if you have an acre, then after a while the environment becomes so hot that you know it becomes drier and drier and drier. And then you have to use water that you take from somewhere else and water the plants. But this water doesn't stay in the soil because there are no trees to keep it. And you don't have grass to keep it either. And there are no animals in the soil anymore because you just like smash it with pesticides. Because it's actually a weak environment, which is why the food that we eat is really weak. You need a lot of it to satisfy. That's how I feel. And sure, that's why we need so much food, because it just never satisfies. Because it's also very different to eat food that a farmer picked with his hand and plowed, you know, an acre that he plowed himself with his hand, with his bare hands, like all the energy and love that goes into this. It's very different from the food that you get from just machine harvesting. And that's why I cook, so that I add the love. And that's why, you know, fast food is really shit. Because they just heat it up, basically. And that's why microwave food is also shit. Because there's no love in it. So you can, you could use probably, you know, like, these kinds of foods and then you could like heat it up yourself again. It will probably change it a little. But I think if it's shit, it's shit. You know, if you take shit from a dog, you probably have to first ferment it or dry it before you can use it and then you could make from the shit a plant. So you could use these burgers and dry them, ferment them, turn them into soil with mushrooms or something like this. And then you could take that and grow other food from it. That's transformation. But if you just eat the shit, then just nothing happens anyway. And that's why, yeah, I was eating some shit from my family and I turned it into art. That's transformation. That's what keeps me going. So yeah, I'm also aware that I need shit from people so that I can do art with it. So if something makes me angry, it's the best reason to draw something. And I would say that's liberation. Because I'm just doing it anyway. And I've been doing it for so long. Like, there's no point to stop now. Right? It's like, you started to hike. And now, let's say you're like 30% of the way. If I would start walking back now or start anew, then I would have to first invest another 30% before I would get to the point where I'm now. And, you know, I'm just starting to take flight, right? I mean, this is for 2024. You know, I'm on fire. You know, I like doing this. I like my life. I'm actually happy that I have limited... Yeah, what do I have limited? Actually, I have everything I need. To make it a challenge. You know, if I say I'm limited in something, 
I'm also judging, and that's very hard. Because people are constantly so concerned with having money and, you know, how much money do you have and I have that much money in my purse. And I have 80 euros on my bank account. Sure, I feel like, you know, I could have frappé, but I don't have it. Because it costs money. And so I'm saving up a little. And that's tough. You know, you want peanut butter? Well, wait till somebody gives you cash and leave the money that's on your account on your account. And then maybe I wouldn't even buy peanut butter. Maybe I would just ask somebody to, or to, I would just put it or get it onto my bank account. And I say, it's just going to pile up now. Maybe that's the way to go. Who's to say? I can't. I've made choices, I know why I've made these choices, and that's why somebody comes and he starts pissing on them, or he just wants to understand them, you know, I realize, oh wow, he's asking the question, he actually wants to know, I was just being overly defensive. But now I realize it's all right the way it is. And that's, I think, what sums up this episode Yeah, pride, whatever, right? If you really like someone, you have to set your pride aside and just do something. But sometimes you just have to accept that, you know, it's not you that's proud anymore, it's the other person. And then they have to come out of their asses and contact you. Because you've done it already a million times. Well, they always rejected you. And then you realize no matter how I do it, as long as I keep establishing contact or trying to establish it, you know, they're like, oh yeah, he's coming after me now. And I was trying it again and it was being rejected. So maybe it's going to come another way. Who's to say, right? Anyway... I just got some really nice stickers from my friend. (laughs) So nice to say that. And they're really nice. It's like... They're so nice. It's basically threatening. And it inspires me to make more art. Hey, thank you for listening. This was... Two hours, holy crap, you know, good luck with that, cheers.